You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Christ is risen. Indeed he is risen. Oh, it's a blessing to be with everybody here during this Easter week, this week of Pascha, of Passover, of the resurrection of Christ. Christ is risen. Indeed he is risen. Happy Easter, Father. Happy Easter. I hope everybody's living in the light of the resurrection because Today is the same day as, as Easter, as Pascha. We live now, this is the life of the Christian. And there is no distinction between this day or that day. It's, it's the day of the resurrection now. We're in the season of Pascha, the season of Easter, the season of the resurrection, the season of light. And we continue to celebrate. I hope everybody had friends and family over, went to Easter vigil mass and, and just ripped the roof off the whole joint, you know? Ate lots of ham and jelly beans yeah. and chocolate eggs. I'm a big fan yeah. of ham. Yeah. Is oh. it builds up the faith in the resurrection. You know Amen. what I mean? It does. Yeah. Absolutely. I always eat pork on Pascha. Always. always. Okay. Always. Jesus <laughs> ripped up our obligations and freed us from the curse of the law. So uh, here we are preparing ourselves now for what is called the second Sunday of Easter which is kind of like the first Sunday of Easter, if you count it after Easter, first Sunday or second right, Sunday. Like the, o- the octave. We're in the octave, exactly. The octave. We're, we're in the octave. So we are, we're continuing that celebration. Yes, this Sunday is the octave day. Yes. And an octave day is always celebrated like the first day, but of course for a Pascha, the whole day is the octave. I mean, just you just, everything blasted out. There is no, you know, night or morning or day or whatever the thing is all in the daylight of the resurrection. But it is the octave day. Why do we celebrate octave days? Number one, number one, you know, I've said this many times. I just go very fast. Okay. Jesus willingly went to the cross on the sixth day of the week, which is, is Good Friday. Right? We just celebrated. We just remember entering through the cross into the tomb, the Sabbath day. As the Father said, Jesus being the God of creation, rest in the tomb on the Sabbath day. And he rose from the dead on the first day of the week, Sunday, a day in which he enters our human nature into the eternal day of the Lord. And now Christians live, having been baptized into Christ, now live in this beautiful day of the resurrection. And so that being the, well, the sixth day, Friday, the seventh day, the Sabbath day, Saturday, the eighth day, Sunday. And so eight days, counting eight days, one day, day, you know, a full eight days is always an octave day. It's the celebration of the Christians, the day of the resurrection. We celebrate great feast days this way. And of course, the Feast of Feasts, which the festival of festivals, Pascha, the the resurrection, Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Yeah, and uh, I haven't gotten much sleep, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> There's a great meme, or whatever they call it, there on you know you see on Facebook all the time on uh, during the season that is Christ is risen, and the priest is dead. Yes. <laughs> so here we are, yeah. second Sunday not of Easter. Not to mention the choir. The that's choir right, also the choir. dead. <laughs> yes. Year C. Year C. Year C. We're gonna look at a couple passages. Annie, tell us what they are. Yeah, okay. So our first reading, and I always love the Easter season because the first reading always comes from the book of Acts. 
get to see what the apostles are up to. So this Sunday, we will be reading from Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Our responsorial psalm is Psalm 118. Our gospel is from John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. And then our, can you call it an epistle if it's the book of Revelation? Is that an epistle? Our second reading is from the book of Revelation chapter one. Now get this, it's verses nine through 11a. And I looked at this, so very merciful of the church. Part B of, of verse 11 has a bunch of like city names that are really hard to pronounce. Oh, but the city names are critically important. Oh, well, okay. I mean, I'll give you that, but they're we're gonna really look at, hard to We're going to look at section B2. So <laughs> not B2, but B also. B as right? well, as yeah. well. So uh, anyway, but in the lectionary, it's Revelation 1, verses 9 through 11a, then 12 and 13, then 17 and 19. So nice, that nice. is where we are. Shall we get started with the facts, Bobby? Okay. First of all, just notice everybody is, as we're as we're taking a look now at these passages. Notice what's the difference between this time of the liturgical year and what we what we would normally do in the new order of the lectionary, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, just from a historical standpoint, the liturgy, the divine liturgy, the mass, historically didn't have in it readings from the Old Testament at least in the readings part, right? So now in the new order of the mass, they go back and they take Old Testament readings, which from an educational catechetical standpoint is a little bit is helpful. Sure. However, the, historically, it, the Old Testament readings were not considered appropriate for the divine liturgy because the divine liturgy is not simply a catechetical tool. It is a mystical revelation of a a mystical liturgical revelation of fulfillment, which is also an important thing. Our liturgy is not historical reenactment, which can get confusing with some of the passion plays and things like that. Mm -hmm. We're not reenacting what happened. And so some people say this, and and for all of our, you know, the vast majority of our ICC audience that participate in these Sunday gospel reflections are Roman Catholic. You know, I'm Byzantine. Right. Some people ask, but Father Hezekiah's, Jesus used unleavened bread at the Last Supper. In the Byzantine tradition, you use leavened bread. Right. Why? Yeah. But Jesus used unleavened bread. And I always say the same thing, but I think it's applicable here. It's important. I'm not saying that unleavened bread in the Roman Catholic Church, that, that practice sure. is bad or whatever. That's a different discussion altogether. But what I am saying is this. We are not simply reenacting. We are, we are, what we are doing in the liturgy is a fulfillment of what Jesus began at the Last Supper. Yes. Mm-hmm. So while he lived under the shadow of the law, if you were or within the confines of the law during the Passover, and while he himself was circumcised, we Christians are baptized. Yes. Right, right, while right. he used unleavened bread, we use the bread of, of the leavened bread of the resurrection, which, would, by the way, on that point, was the historical practice of the church east and west up until about the sixth century, seventh century. Mm-hmm which liturgically is quite late. Okay. Right. Yeah. So anyways, I'm not, again, I'm not saying anything about the 11 versus 11. My point is about these texts that the new Testament readings are given us to us in the divine liturgy in the, in the mass, because we are living in, 
in the light of, of the new covenant, yeah? And so we don't go back to shadow when we have fulfillment. That's my only point. So you have an experience here in the, uh, the liturgical cycle, the lectionary cycle, to experience what Christians for really 2,000 years have experienced. That is, during the divine office, yes, we go back to the Old Testament. But during the Mass, during the divine liturgy, it's all New Testament revelation. And here you have it. Acts chapter 5, verse 12 through 16. Yes? Okay. Go yes. Ahead. That was a long-winded way of explaining that. But it's, you know, Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Okay, go ahead. All right, here we go. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Get out your Bibles. Read along with us. All right, here we go. Many signs and wonders were done among the people at the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the others dared to join them, but the people esteemed them. Yet more than ever, believers in the Lord, great numbers of men and women were added to them. Thus, they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on one or another of them. A large number of people from the towns in the vicinity of Jerusalem also gathered, bringing the sick and those disturbed by unclean spirits, and they were all cured. Amen. Amen. So, Father, I mean, this is the first time that, that we're reading from the book of Acts, at least this year. So tell us a little bit about this book in the Bible, and then also give us some context here, because, I mean, we seem to have kind of skipped ahead in the story. I know you just went on this whole thing about how we're not reenacting, but this is after Pentecost, right? Right. So it's, it's customary in the church to always begin the reading of Acts at the time of the resurrection of Christ, because now we are living. This is the revelation of the early church, the new life of the community. It's very important to remember that, because, again, I go back to what I was saying earlier, and that is we are not into historical reenactment. We are learning now in the church and listening as that early church in Acts of the Apostles would have listened to the teachings of the apostles themselves, yeah? Mm -hmm. So as we enter into the church now, we, we are called back to our original identity as that early church, that apostolic church. And don't forget, as we're reading these texts, just as we've been looking in the over Lent, constantly remind ourselves of what? Who's listening? Who is a lectionary written for during Lent, Annie? The catechumen. So who's the lectionary written for during the Easter season? The neophyte. The newly, that's right, exactly. Right. The newly illumined, right? The newly baptized. And so the newly baptized now are integrated into the community. And we're learning about now a little bit about our history of who we are as a community. Yeah. Sure. And so this is a very much a catechetical event taking place in, in its proclamation to those new catechumens who have just experienced baptism. They've just experienced confirmation they just experienced reception of the holy eucharist they're now being told what this is all about yes mm -hmm. and just as and just as we talked about the transfiguration of christ before before holy week and its purposes just we talked about the resurrection of lazarus the raising of lazarus and its purposes now we begin to talk about the effects of our baptism yeah what happens to you when you're baptized newly illumined servants of God, and, and by extension, and all of you, you know, 
unwashed masses. No, I'm kidding. You're all washed because you're all been baptized. So all of you, what happened to the day on your baptism? And this begins to reveal to the newly illumined the reality of what has happened. Not only that the priest stand on the altar can truly take bread and wine and be the conduit of God's grace by which they are transformed into the body and blood of Christ. Yes. But all of the created order is meant to be transformed, transfigured by this reality so much so that the power of the Christian, oh, Christian, who has just been baptized, is so strong. It's so real that even the shadow of the holy ones has the ability to bring healing, transformation to those that come into contact with you. Yes, just as they did when the shadow of the apostles fell on them. And I said, I'm just going to go ahead and break off here for just a minute then. Sure. Oh, you who have been baptized, both newly illumined and those who have a couple of gray hairs in their beard, you know, this revelation should remind you of those that were brought to Christ, right? Annie? Right. Yeah. And the, the truth that now what we knew about Christ from the gospels, what we know about Christ from the gospels is now made, is now revealed in his followers. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to read to you St. John Chrysostom. Earth was becoming like heaven for their way of life, boldness of speech, wonders for all, for all besides. Like angels were they looked upon with wonder. They were unconcerned about ridicule, threats, perils. They were compassionate and beneficent. Some of them they helped with money, some with words, and some with healing of their bodies and souls. They accomplished every kind of healing. St. Bede goes on and says this. At that time, Peter visibly relieved the, the infirmed by the shadow of his body. Now he does not cease to strengthen the infirmed among the faithful by the invisible screen of his intercession. And because Peter is a type of church, it is beautifully appropriate that he himself walked upright. But by his accompanying shadow, he raised up those who were lying down. And that's mm-hmm. that's the point I wanted to point about from, yeah. from St. Pete. Is that, is that the whole of the church now, and don't, uh, please, when he's talking about St. Peter as chief of the apostles, he's then extending, saying, talking about the whole, the whole role of the entire church as represented by Peter. Yeah. yeah. That we are now, what we have received in baptism is not to be simply received, but it is to be given. Hmm. Yeah. I want to turn you to an Old Testament passage I think is important in this, in this manner. And then to continue a little bit of a catechesis on this point. And it comes to us from Second Kings. Second Kings chapter 13, the story of the prophet Elisha. Remember who Elisha was? Anna? Yeah. Well, the he's disciple. the type of Christ, is he not? That, uh, he's the successor of Elijah. The successor of Elijah is right. He receives a double portion of Elijah's spirit, right? Right. Well, eventually, Elisha or Eliseus, depending on your the background, the, the translation of your Bible, dies. Mm-hmm. And what's what's I love about this story is that what happens when he dies. Okay, so listen to this chapter, Second Kings, chapter thirteen, verse twenty. Verse twenty. So Elisha died. Here, Annie, you read it for us. All right. It says so. Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was cast into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, 
he revived and okay. stood on his feet. There you go. Okay. Now I'm going to cool. just stop for a second. Okay, just get the scene, right? What's going on? This guy, the, Alicia died, right? He's buried in a tomb. Well, in those days, you didn't, they didn't really bury them exactly. They had a, like a cave, right? They, mm-hmm. like, like Jesus was buried, right? And yeah. there, were, there was stone shelves in there and a family would have these places and they would lay the body there for a couple of years, let the body disintegrate and the bones would be left collected and put into an ossuary, a boat. A, a bonoary, right? A, a, <laughs> right, a container to <laughs> like hold the that. bones in. You can still see some of these in the Holy Land today when we go and visit there. And so this is what's going on, right? Alicia dies, put into the tomb and into the cave, whatever it is. Another guy dies and they're, they're, and they're going to go and they're going to put him in. It was probably into his family burial place, whatever the case is. And lo and behold, a marauding band of Moabites. Now, I particularly like this story because you know who the Moabites are? You know where the they're Moabites lived? Jordan, right? into the Jordanians. Okay. Yeah, now yeah. I happen to have a bunch of Jordanians in my community. Okay. So nice. here's what it is. The marauding band of, of, com- <laughs> of, of complete, you know, yeah, yeah. Like, like imagine the Vikings okay? <laughs> the marauding <laughs> band. They're going in there. They're pillaging, raping, they're, they're destroying in their back. Okay. I can understand that because I'm the pastor. Your congregation. Yeah. Exactly. So here they are. And they, the guys in the town see this marauding band of Jordanians. And so they're like, oh, they're, they're coming in to, to pillage again. And they got to finish the burial. And so they, the closest tomb is the prophet Elisha. They open it up, throw the guy in, and lo and behold, the guy resurrects from the dead at touching the dead bones of this holy man. Wow. And I, I mentioned that because it's very similar to this story. Not only does the Christian have this gift of life within him that is power of healing, but not only that, the dead bones of a dead man. Yeah. The dead bones of a Jew. Yeah. Have this power to re- revive. Yeah. To, to give life. Because when you are baptized, now I'm going to turn to Romans chapter six. Romans chapter six. And I haven't looked ahead in our lectionary cycle. I wonder if we're going to come to this passage anyways, possibly in the coming weeks. But surprise me. Here we are. Romans chapter six. Yeah, that's in the New Testament. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. That's where I was going. Good. Oh, good, Annie. I wasn't sure if you knew about that. Yeah, or not. I, just, I try to be a faithful disciple of Father Hezekiah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm getting used to flipping through my Bible. There you go. Romans chapter six. All right. What are we to say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can you who died to sin still live in it? First, I'm going to stop there, Christians. St. Paul expects us to stop sinning. Stop it. It's enough already. Don't do it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. And of course, that newness of life is the life of the resurrection. Notice here, Jesus doesn't, or St. Paul doesn't say that you are baptized like Jesus. He says you're baptized into Christ Jesus. And St. Paul says, no longer I who live, but is Christ who lives in me, right? So when we talk about the shadow of St. Peter, the apostles in Acts, of, in, in Acts chapter 5, when we talk about this gift of healing that they have, number one, remember that our theology is always Christocentric, right? We don't go, oh, well, Peter was the greatest of the apostles, therefore Peter has this power. No, Christ has this power, and Peter has died to himself and been incorporated into Christ, just as you have in your baptism, Christian. Mm-hmm. You have this gift of transformative love. 
Because God has loved us and loves the sharing of our life, we now have his life within us. When you go out into the world, oh, neophyte, oh, newly illumined, oh, you know, newly baptized Christian, realize who you are. St. Peter says, go with me to, to, what is it, Second Peter? Hold on. We're going to get there. Second Peter. That's further on in the New Testament. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Trying to help. Second Peter chapter one, verse three and three and four. Go ahead, Amy. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. There you go. You, you through your baptism, are partaking in the divine nature. You have, the div- you have a divine, you have a God nature. Now, nature, let's do a little bit of philosophical work here, and then we're going to come back, Annie, and move on to our response to our psalm. Uh, what is a nature, right? A nature, you tell me, Annie, come on, ICC uh, uh, student, philosophy. Didn't you take the philosophy course, Annie? I did. Yeah. Okay, good. I mean, it's right. like who you are, what you are. Good. Right? What, right? In yeah. nature, you want to ask the question of what, right? What? So, yeah. yeah. So what is it? It's a dog. Well, it is doggy nature, right? What mm-hmm. is it? Well, it's, it's a human being, right? right? What is it? It's an angel. The what responds to the, to the nature of the thing. Natures allow things to act in certain way, do certain things, right? Which is why mm-hmm. you can always say, you know what a thing is by what it does. Yeah. Act, write this down. Act. You writing this down, Annie? I'm getting a pen and a piece of paper. Act follows Act. being. That's the philosophical line. Okay. Act. Act follows being, or what a thing is determines what it does. Action follows. Well, if it's a dog, it barks. barks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if yeah. it's a Christian, it does Christian stuff. And what is a Christian? He's a Christ. He's one who has been chrismated, who has received a holy anointing, who is in the Lord. And therefore he acts, he does what Jesus does. He forgives sins. He heals people. Yeah. He serves them. I have come not to be served, but to serve. This is what a Christian does. You want to know what a Christian does? Look at Jesus. Mm-hmm. nothing more nothing less he he's, he 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 rises from the dead he walks in a newness of life he ascends to the throne of god himself he reigns and is given dominion over creation he transforms creation by the love which god has placed in his heart he transforms creation by that same love divinizing it making all that is in his path partakers of the divine nature he takes what was bread and he makes it the body of christ he takes what was water and makes it the blood of christ he makes water to, to, for baptism he transforms this entire created order until it's literally alive with god again yeah yeah now thus the reason why peter's shadow healed people i'm gonna leave it at that newly illumined You take that home. Think about it. What God has called you to is a radical transformation of your life, 
a radical transformation of everybody and everything that you come into contact with. Because if you don't, then that which is around you will not be saved. God will not save this world without you. He has made you a partaker of his salvific act. Which is why it seems significant to me in here that it says yet more than ever, believers in the Lord, great numbers of men and women were added to him, to them. That they're, you're talking about, they're, they're coming to believe in the Lord because of this. They're not coming to believe in the apostles. And so people are recognizing that this is the work of God through the apostles. Amen. And that's it, Annie. That's it. And, but, but this is not something that happened 2000 years ago. It's a reality present today. Certainly the apostles enjoyed a certain apostolic uh, charism. No doubt about that, but let, let's not forget of the transformative character and the power of the gift of, for example, Holy confession. You remember when Jesus came to the paralytic and he said, Let's just turn there real quick. Gospel of Matt. There it is. Annie, Matthew chapter nine, Matthew chapter nine. Let's just read this passage very quickly because I think, you know, as, as Catholics, oftentimes we start to take things for granted of what goes on in the church from the Eucharist to Holy confession, confirmation, baptism, all of these many gifts that the church is given by its participation in who Christ is. Look at this. And getting into the boat, go ahead, read for us, verse 1 through 9. 1 through 9? Through verse 8. Okay. Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on his bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So what's the more powerful gift, Annie, to heal the paralytic or to forgive the sins? To forgive the sins. Exactly. So this is the more, because you can heal the body, but if you leave the soul unhealed, this is, right? You don't want to leave a paralytic soul with a healed body, right? Exactly. And so this is very important to remember that the transformation of the spirit is the more powerful gift. The, The transformation of the physical element is a lower gift. It doesn't mean it's not important but it's not the most important. The transformation of the lower gift is oftentimes given as proof of the transformation of the higher because of a lack of faith. Yeah. Yes. Which is why Jesus says to Thomas in the, re- at the, at the, in the day of the resurrection, eight days later, we're going to look at in the gospel. Yeah. What's he say? Blessed are, those, are those who, who don't see, but believe. And yet believe. Yeah. Right. Jesus is calling us now, having given us all the physical evidence of who he is right he's healed the paralytics. he's healed the blind he's done all this the apostles went and did it for god's sake christians is that not enough for you (laughs) at some point you have to grow up and graduate to a true faith in the one and entrusting yourself to the one yeah in the Uh day that we live we may not see all of those physical healings that had happened but they happened for our faith for our belief 
for proof of the spiritual resurrection of all Christians. Yeah. And that spiritual transformation, which takes place in the church, is the most powerful of gifts. What happens in the Holy Confession, the most powerful of gifts. What happens in the Holy Baptism, the most powerful of gifts. Yeah. Anyways. Because ahead. as we read in the Psalm 118, his mercy endures forever. Yeah. You know, Pope Francis is a great thing. It says mercy, he defined mercy in this way. I really like this little insight. He says, mercy is love in action. Yeah. I, I kind of like it. I mean, it's kind of a Pope Francis way of saying it, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But there's something to it. There's something to it. It's, it's like, because like this, if, if he's right, that mercy is love in action and love is the giving of our life to the beloved, then mercy is this, this act of, it's the act of love, right? Yeah, it's yeah. the doing of the love. And love is the giving of my life to the beloved. Therefore, we can say now, having seen Peter and what's going on there, that certainly his love has endured forever. And what he has now done to Peter and done to you, newly baptized Christians, and done to you, you know, gray beards that maybe were baptized a long time ago, what he has done for you is a continuation of what he's done throughout all of salvation history. Namely, shared his life with those whom he is in love with and who are in love with him. Whether it be Elisha or Moses or Adam and Eve, mm -hmm. Joshua, St. Peter himself, and you who now find yourself in the company of the saints, let the house of Israel say his mercy, his love has never ended. Let the house of Aaron say his love has never ended. Let those who fear the Lord say his love has never ended. Let your household say his love has never ended. For it has transformed your life also and my life now into this company of saints, this communion, which is the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, speaking of sharing life with uh, with the others, I mean, I, I think that that helps us roll right on into John chapter 20 and what we're going to read about Jesus encountering, or, well, the apostles encountering Jesus, I guess. What do you think? Which yes, way? Absolutely. It? Let's take a look at it. John chapter 20, verse 19. Yeah. Verse 19 is where we start and we'll go through 31. It says on the evening of that first day of the week, when the doors were locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them and whose sins you retain are retained. Thomas called Didymus, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples said to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hand and put my finger into the nail marks and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, a week later, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, although the doors were locked, and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, 
put your finger here and see my hands and bring your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believe. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you come to believe because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that through this belief, you may have life in his name. Now, Father, let's start at the beginning here. When exactly is this happening? Well, I think the details are given to us right there in the text itself. So let's, so you'll see on the evening of that first day of the week. So what day of, what is that? Uh, Sunday. It's Sunday, right? It's the first day of the week. The evening. It's the evening of the resurrection. Okay. So this is the resurrection day. That's right. Got it. Okay. And then, and then notice, cause I'm going to go back. Cause you always have to listen. It's just context. Just read in context. So I'm going to look. I'm going to look at chapter 20 now on the first day of the week. And then you get the whole story, chapter 20, verse one, the whole story of Mary Magdalene. Then I'm going to come down to verse 19 on the evening of that day. See that? So this is the mm -hmm. first day. This is the day of the resurrection. This is Pascha. This is Easter. That's Sunday in the evening then. And then what happens? He shows up. Peace be with you. All this business. And he shows up to them again a week later. A week later. What day of the week is that? So it would be like today. Well, I mean, if you're watching on the Sunday after Easter, like a week yeah. later. Thank you. Yeah. One week later. Jesus yeah. always shows up again and again on Sunday. Okay. He reveals himself to them on Sunday. Now, this is an important point. I'm just going to. I, I'm not going to talk, I, I want to talk about this breathing on them and stuff like that, but look, I know your pastor is going to preach on this in your home, but there's some things that he probably won't be preaching on. I want to get into from a little bit of an apologetic standpoint, from a catechetical standpoint, number one, number one, we say that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of the law. Mm -hmm. Why do we say that? The whole of the law is fulfilled in him. Why do we say that? The, the law in the Old Testament written on stone is the will of God for his people. Yes. Mm -hmm. Written on stone. Why? Because the people of God have separated themselves from their divine husband, right? They're our, our bridegroom in the fall of our first parents. And so now no longer is God's will written on their hearts, but because they've dislocated themselves from that nature we've been talking about, from that life of God within them, the Lord sends them an invitation card, hmm. okay, which is the Ten Commandments and the whole of the law, saying, look, if you want to come back to live in, our, in the house, if you want to come live with me, here's how the, you're going to live in this house. But of course, that law is not meant to be written on stone, right? You don't, you don't go to a party and pull out at the party the invitation card and continue to read it. Right. Because you're at the party. Yeah. You're right? part again. Right. Yeah. You don't need, you no longer need to hear about the party because you're in the party. Right. Okay. We've talked about a lot before John chapter 31, not John chapter 31, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 
31. 31. I'm not going to go read it right now because I've read it with you guys enough. If you haven't, go read it right now. This is the prophecy of Jeremiah that in when the Messiah comes, this is what's going to happen. No longer is that, is that law going to be written on stone, but it's going to be written on the heart of man. And of course, the heart of man is the Messiah, Jesus, right? right. He is the walking will of God. He is God's will in flesh incarnate. So what he does fulfills the law, which is why, which is why the apostles can gather in Acts chapter 15 for the first council and say, you know, that circumcision business, it's fulfilled in Christ. Now you want to know how to get into the covenant. It's a matter of being baptized into him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. St. Paul talks about baptism in terms of a new circumcision, which is good and it's true and it's right but ultimately he can talk about new circumcision be, not because it's just some other law that we do like oh well that was the old way to do it now we got a new way to do it no <laughs> a less painful way yeah because right because <laughs> baptism incorporates us into christ there is salvation no one but jesus because he is god salvation is eternal life and he has eternal life and therefore i got to get some of that action right yeah. i got to get into him Baptism does that for us. Okay. So Jesus, I was, I was speaking with a friend of mine the other day, who's, who's a Protestant. And, and I said to him, we're talking about Sabbath day rest. Cause some of the Protestants are very confused now. They're going, should we, aren't we supposed to still keep the Sabbath because it was like mm -hmm. a, you know, everlasting, you know, whatever, like this thing. I mean, for God's sake, they said the same thing about eight, about circumcision. Mm -hmm. So yes, you are Christian supposed to keep the Sabbath day. You are. In Christ, Jesus is the one who rests in the, in, the, in the tomb on the great Sabbath day. The fathers of the church are universally consistent on this point. Jesus, having fulfilled the Sabbath, fulfilled the law, having rested in the tomb, that resting the tomb now is made present to our baptism into him. And now he raises us from the dead to walk in this newness of life. The Sabbath day has been eternally fulfilled in Christ and now in you and me in our resting in the tomb and our in the baptismal font mm. having been incorporated into him and made one with him we now rise from the dead with him to this newness of life now why am i saying all of that because now jesus appears time and time again on sunday not on the sabbath day he was he 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 was in the sabbath day in mm -hmm. the tomb resting in the tomb while he went down into Hades and brought Adam and Eve back to life. Yes. So that has been fulfilled. And now Jesus appears to the apostles again and again on the day of the resurrection. And I do believe that's what your question was. When exactly was this happening? I'm yeah. sorry that that was a bit of a long trail to get there. Well, that's okay. Um, you also, you were like, well, I'll talk about why he was breathing on them. You'll yeah. probably hear about that in the homily, but I want to know why was Jesus breathing on them? It's wanna, kind wanna, of a weird thing to do, isn't it? Well, I mean, no, it's not a weird thing to do if you're if you know the Bible, right? Because you remember, well, yeah. remember okay. in Genesis chapter, look, go back. Genesis chapter two. Very fast. Go, 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 go. Because we're running out of time. Genesis, Genesis chapter, chapter two. Chapter two. First one to get their wins. Chapter two. Genesis. Ah. You with me? Almost. Hurry. My Bible has a lot of opening pages. Okay. I'm here. Chapter two, verse seven. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Okay. Now, so, so, no, it's not unusual. God is coming to restore us 
to paradise. The church is paradise restored in which all of, all of the created order is transformed. Yeah? Divinized. He's coming to restore this gift to us. And so therefore he breathes on the apostles to give them the gift of the Holy Spirit. But your next question is going to be what, Annie? He not only breathes on them now, but he's going to also send the Holy, the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Yeah. When? At Pentecost. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. How is this different from what happens at Pentecost? So this is probably, I'm guessing that your, um, I'm guessing that your, your pastor, your priest is going to preach on this on, 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 on Sunday. I don't know if he is or not, but I'm going to make the point because I think it's a good catechetical point for our newly illumined members of this church. Yes. Newly confirmed, newly baptized. How did you call them, Annie? Neophytes. Neophytes. I'm sorry. The Latins use this, the Roman Catholic Church uses the term and the Byzantine call them newly illumined. I, Okay. I like either. They're good. Yeah, both of them are good. St. Cyril of Jerusalem, listen to this. This was the second time he breathed on mankind. Mm. His first breath having been stifled through willful sins in Genesis chapter 2. But though he bestowed his grace then, he was to lavish it yet more bountifully. And he says to them, I am ready to give it even now, but the vessel cannot yet hold it. For a while, therefore, receive as much grace as you can bear and look forward to yet even more. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high, Acts of the Apostles. Mm -hmm. Receive it in part now, then you shall wear it in its fullness. For the one who receives often possesses only a part of the gift, but the one who is clothed is completely enfolded by his robe. I love this insight by St. Cyril of Jerusalem. Because it gets back to a point I oftentimes make. And I'm going to let you, Annie, answer the question. And that is, what happens to you when you're baptized? I'm baptized into Christ. Yes, you and, you be, and, and you receive at that moment. The life of God within me. And what happens to you when you receive Holy Communion? I receive the life of God within me. And what happens when you're confirmed? I received the life of God within me. And what I should have done this in a different order, by the way. Baptism. <laughs> yeah, you're going in, you're going in the <laughs> I'm such a modernist. You're such I, a again, what happens when you when you go to holy confession and the priest says the prayers of, of absolution? I received the life of God within me. What happens when you receive holy anointing? What I happens when you're married? What yeah. happens when you receive ordination? Do you see all of the sacraments do the same thing? They pour God's life into you in, yes, in its particular ways. Like, like a husband says to a wife and a wife says uh, in a hundred different ways, I love you. The seven sacraments are like the seven arteries of the body of Christ flowing the life of God into the soul. Yeah. And so a lot of people make a mountain out of a molehill, I think, regarding these two different gifts of the Holy Spirit. But I'm going to say it's not only twice. It's seven times. It's more than seven times because there's a hundred thousand ways in which we receive the grace of God within us. Mm -hmm. The seven sacraments being the, the 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 arteries, but of course there's all the veins and capillaries, right? Yeah. Okay. And so uh, don't, don't let yourself get just distracted. They breathed on this time. You sent the Holy Spirit that time. What's going on? What's the difference? Whatever. It's it's Jesus filling them up with the life of God. Yeah, so I know we're going to talk about confession this Sunday. We're going to talk about the power of the priest and hearing confessions, all good and things like that and so forth. But remember, this is a gift given to the church, given to the whole community, the body of Christ, which has different parts to it. Yeah, 
Mm-hmm. One part does this. One part's a hand, an eye, an ear. And when I'm at confession, I lend my ear to the body of Christ. I lend my ear to Christ. Okay. And, and you, Annie, have your particular gifts within the body of Christ. Each of us given a different portion of that gift and for, for the building up of the body as we read in Ephesians chapter four. Okay. So there you have it. All right. Now, can you talk about this interaction between Jesus and Thomas? I mean, what should we be taking away from, from this interaction that they have here on the, the second time that Jesus is coming to visit them? Well, I'll say this, because again, I think you're going to get into this in your homily. So I'll just lay the groundwork for it. So I'm not going to, I, look, I can give you all sorts of homily stuff on this. Is, I'm not going to do that right now. Sure. What I am going to give you is what you're not going to get. And that's this. You have to understand that the gospel of John was written quite late in John's life. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and later on in that first century of Christianity, the first hundred years, right? Or the first 70 years up to about the year 100, which is about when John died. There were two major heresies that developed in the church. One was the Judaizers who believed everybody mm-hmm. needed to be Jew before they become a Christian. So you can be circumcised before you're baptized. Acts 15 deals with this and says, no, that's not the case. The second great heresy that develops is when the church starts to spread into the Gentile world and encounters the heresy of Gnosticism, which mm-hmm. was a dualist heresy. We've talked a lot about it at the ICC, a dualist heresy, which says the immaterial world is good and the material world is evil. And there are two gods and they're at tension with each other. Well, of course, this impacts what we believe about Christ, right? Was he in the flesh right. or not in the flesh? Did he rise from the dead in the, in the body or not in the body? Was he just an apparition like the Docetists say? The Docetists were early Christian Gnostics, okay? Dualists are saying, no, 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 no. He just appeared to be in the flesh. Well, John is dealing with this heresy, and which is why in throughout his gospel, he's saying, touch him. Yeah. He begins what? He be incarnatus est, in the flesh, right? He says, put your finger into my side, right? Touch, see, eat the Eucharist, chew on the flesh. In John 6, right? She's very, so turn with me very quickly to the epistle of second John. It's almost at the book of Revelation. Go backwards. First, second, third John. You're going to find it right there. You see that? Look at second John. It's one chapter, guys. So just give me a verse. (laughs) Okay. Verse seven. Go ahead. Verse seven. It says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Men who will not acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Right. Why are they not? They're not, they're not accepting this. This is going to come out, by the way, in Ignatius's writings, Ignatius's seven letters. Great to read right at this time of year in which he says, that's why some will not receive the Eucharist hmm. because of what the church was teaching about it. The Docetists saying that Jesus only appeared in the flesh, refused to receive the Eucharist because of what the early church was teaching about it, which is a big affront to our dear brothers and sisters who say this, that, the, that the Eucharist is only a symbol of the flesh of Jesus. Please. My God, we've been dealing with this for 2,000 years. <laughs> the early Christians died for this reality. And the Docetist heretics were condemned by the church for their error. For Jesus did come in the flesh. He rose in the flesh and we eat his body and we drink his blood in the Eucharist. Truly, really, we do. Not in some kind of symbolic way. In reality, communing with Christ himself. Yeah? Under the veil of bread and wine. 
And so here John deals with this thing. And this is what I wanted to say about, about why John's writing the way he's writing. I'm not saying Jesus didn't say this. He did. But J John himself is highlighting this fact, whereas the other synoptics don't. Because John lived longer than the other evangelists. He lived the longest. And while that heresy started to grow strong in the church to the end of the, uh, the beginning, well, towards the year 100, right? After he had come off of Patmos and come back to Ephesus, he encounters this problem. And therefore, he highlights this thing, okay? And I'll just say about, about um, I'll just say about um, St. Thomas, he gets a bad rap. Everybody doubting Thomas. I don't like that. First of all, he's an apostle. Second of all, he's a saint. And third of all, I want to ask you what you would have done. Had yeah. your buddies been like, he rose from the dead and we saw him and he walked through the wall. He'd be like, okay, maybe, me? <laughs> maybe we need to just, I know you guys have been have lacking sleep lately. You know, you've all. Well, the other, can I just add, I mean, like he wasn't behind the locked door. So he was like out somewhere. I don't know if he was just getting milk down the street. Who He's knows? Seven Eleven. But yeah. he was he was outside. He wasn't hiding from from those who had just killed their lord. So right. you know, right. I don't know what he was doing, but he was at least you know outside right. of that upper room. Give Thomas a break. Lay the groundwork now. Understand what's been going on. Give you the background historical perspective. And now. I hope your pastor can preach the word of God this Sunday. The last thing we have to look at is the book of Revelation, but we are almost out of time, and we've got to do this very quickly. Go. Okay, let's do it. Do you want me to read it? Or do we? Uh, chapter one, verse nine. Go, go. Just All right, go. chapter one, verse nine. Yeah, but you got to start. You got to read verse one, nine through 19 and not skip the couple of things that were skipping. Oh, well, then I got to get it out of my Bible and not my lectionary book. Thank you. Revelation chapter one, verse nine. Go. All right. I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Laodicea? Laodicea, fine. Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, <coughs> and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white, as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth issued a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now write what you see, what is, and what is to take place hereafter. Okay, now, this is the beginning of John's book of Revelation. 
I'm simply going to say that. So the, well, I'm simply going to say this. I probably have about 15 things I'm going to say right now, but <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind is, is this, remember the newly illumined, remember those who have just been baptized, right? The neophytes who are now standing in the midst of the church and they're experiencing the divine liturgy now for the first time. Well, the second time, right? The Pascha, Easter, and now they come back into the church and they're surrounded by the church singing the praises of God. Remember, Annie, on the high altar, remember how many candles are on the high altar in the traditional Roman Catholic church? Is it six? Six and in the middle, um, the cross of Christ always. Yeah. Oh yeah, the cross. Yeah, the light of, of the world, right? Yeah. The seven branches of the candlesticks of the book of Revelation, the menorah candle, which, which the Jews saw in the, the, in the menorah candle, a symbol of the tree of life, yeah? Mm -hmm. In the midst of the candle, Christ, who is the light of the world. Always a seven branch candelabra, on the high altar, okay, in, in the Roman Catholic Church, and in the Byzantine tradition, the same, seven-wrench candelabra, okay, and always in the middle, the cross of Christ. The seven, the seven candles represent these seven churches that are written, there are the seven churches in the diocese of St. John. John comes off of Patmos, goes back to Ephesus, right, and he, so he, and he goes, and he travels around these churches. This, some have made the point that the, that this was the mail route, and the, how these oh, are listed, yeah. Ephesus and then Smyrna and then Pergamum and so forth. This is the mail route of delivery. And John is going to go ahead and now write in chapter two, his seven letters to these seven churches, encouraging them while he's on Patmos. Why is he on Patmos? Because he got arrested, like all the other apostles did, got arrested and they tried to kill him. They throw him in boiling oil and he lives. And so like, what do we do you know, with this guy? Get this <laughs> yeah. guy out of here. Okay. <laughs> They, they're like, they're not going to try to kill him again because this is not going well, just to exile him to Patmos. So he's out on Patmos. He writes to his churches these seven letters of encouragement. Yeah. They're highly symbolic in their language, most likely because if they got, if the letters got taken by somebody else, they wouldn't be able to understand how to interpret them. Okay. By mm -hmm. a, an authority, if you, if you will. Sure. Um, but notice all the language taken from the book of, Revel of the book of Genesis from the garden of Eden, right? The tree of life, mm -hmm. the new manna or the hidden manna, right? All these things about what is being received by the church. Notice what happens now. John is, he's in the spirit when? On the Lord's day. On the Lord's day. Of course, what's the Lord's day? It's Sunday, right? Sunday. The yeah. Lord's day. So, so what's going on? John's on Patmos and he's about to celebrate the divine liturgy. I've been in the cave where this Ooh, happened. Cool. On Patmos. And he's in the spirit on the Lord's day. What does it mean for a Christian to be in the spirit on the Lord's day? Well, you're not barbecuing hot dogs in the backyard, <laughs> right? You're in the divine liturgy. Yeah. He's in the spirit on the Lord's day. And all of a sudden what happens? All that is physically around him, the altar, the Eucharistic lamb, okay? The whole of the, the liturgy, which is surrounding him and the people that have gathered to him on Patmos who are singing, suddenly, all the physical elements of this world are transfigured. And he sees the reality of the mass as it really is. No longer just, you know, Frank and Bob and Francis singing, holy, holy, holy. The angels are surrounding the altar. No longer is the Eucharist under the veil of bread. He sees the Lamb of God standing, risen. Thank you, Byzantine Christians with risen Eucharist. It's a little side thing, yeah. Okay, standing as though he's been slain with the marks of his sacrifice. Yeah, 
Mm-hmm. And then, um, uh, and, and uh, the whole business, the whole of the book of Revelation is, is about this, is, is this transformation of what he sees. And now based on what he sees, he gives his revelation of the whole of the divine, the heavenly host and so forth like that. I'm going to encourage you to go to the Institute of Catholic Culture. The Institute has a wonderful series called The Apocalypse of St. John. Understand the book of Revelation with my brother, Father Sebastian. So I encourage you to go there. The Apocalypse of St. John, understand the book of Revelation. You can go there and do a whole series. I think it's a three-part series here at the Institute on the book of Revelation. But just maybe in conclusion, Annie, to encourage mm-hmm. everybody to realize that when we're in church, you know, when we're at mass, when we're at the divine liturgy, it, a lot of people say it poetically that heaven comes down and makes itself present on earth. And say, no, the earth is taken up. As John was taken up, and the veil that we normally see around us is 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 opened. Allow that veil to be opened this Sunday. Allow you stop when we're singing the song to us, the holy, holy, holy. Stop singing for a moment, and allow the sound of the choir and the people around you to take you up. And realize that it is Christ standing at the altar. The priest stands in persona Christi. It is Christ giving you holy communion, sharing His life with you. Realize that you have been incorporated and now stand to your right and left with the angels themselves. And the transformation of this entire created order in the church, never miss church on Sunday, never miss the gathering of God's people. It is the greatest gift of our life. It's the gift given now to the newly illumined, to the, to the uh, newly baptized members of our community, each one of us knew who received the newness of life in Christ. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Christos anesti. Alithos anesti. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.